Good morning, First Church. Let's go ahead and stand. Get in some worship.
rushing in the pressing
jealous for me Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind and mercy And all of the sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory Oh.
You may be seated. For those of you that are watching at home, we're trying to little by little make things more normal, kind of the way they were. So this morning, I want to say welcome. We're glad to have you with us, whether you're here, whether you're watching on the live stream, whether you're watching this later in the week. We're glad that you're with us. We appreciate you being here. We don't ever want to take that for granted because this is an important thing about how Christians get together and worship as a part of the body of Christ. So one of the things that we haven't said in a while, but we used to always say so that people got sick of it, was this morning is not about you. This morning is about God. That's what this is about. It's about us coming to worship him. It's not about us coming to get a good feeling. It's not even necessarily about us coming to learn something, although I hope you will. But if you do, that's extra. This morning is about worshiping God. It's about being a part of what he's doing and giving him the glory. That's what we want to do. If this is your first time, in the seat in front of you, there are visitor's cards. If you've never filled one out, we'd love to have you fill it out. Uh, You can put it. There's a little plate in the back. That's another thing we're not doing now. We're not taking an offering. There's just a plate in the back for offering. And you can also put your visitor card in that plate. And uh, we will just send you a letter saying thank you for coming and visiting us. We'll send you a little coffee card for you to get a free. Well, it depends on what you want to get. It's a $5 card. If you want something that's too expensive, we're only paying for five of it. All right, just letting you know that because we're cheap. And that's the way things are. All right, so you get, a, you get a coffee card and just a letter from us saying thank you for coming. Thank you for being a part of, with us. You know, wherever, if, you, if you're a visitor, wherever you may decide to worship, if it's not here, We just want you to worship somewhere where God is at work, where God is involved, where the word is faithfully preached and proclaimed. That's all. And you find someone else, someplace else like that, and there are other churches like that, then great. God bless you. We're happy for you. But this is is part of us just saying thank you for coming and being with us for one day. One of the things I thought about... um, and I haven't done this in a long time, too. When we sing, you know, one of the things we want to do is we, we, we want you to think about how you're, you're engaging your mind, you're engaging your will, and you're engaging your emotions. It's a three-part thing. Your mind thinking it over, your will making decisions, how should I react to this? And your emotions, in the sense of your emotions, it, it can be stirred, and that's not a bad thing. And I was thinking, though, we just sang in the pressing, in the, in the pressing, in the crushing, and it made, remind me of one of my favorite illustrations from the Word of God. In, in Israel, they had these stones. They were rectangular, and they stood about this high, uh, uh, just a tall stone like that. And these stones would be leveraged up. And when they were uh, grapes from the harvest and a lot of time olives, they would put them in sacks, and they would stack them up under this raised stone. And then they would have a basin that would catch all the juice, grape juice, olive juice, whatever they were crushing. And then they would lower that stone... On and the stone would crush. And uh, grapes, it would happen pretty fast. But with olives, they'd leave that stone on there for like a day. And then they would take that, and that would be their most pure juice, and then olive, olive oil. And then they would leave it on for three or four days, and it would get more, and it would be less pure, be less, but it would crush. Now, the name of that stone in the Greek was a Gethsemane stone. Does that ring a bell? The Garden of Gethsemane is the Garden of Crushing. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died, and he was crushed to the point that blood ran from his forehead, from his head. 
he was crushed. He was crushed to the point that he said, Father, is there any other way to do this? Is there any other way to do this? Yet not my will, but your will. And so we have that link. You know, when we sing the pressing, the crushing, what are we singing about? We're singing, we're going right back to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Crushing. And throughout the history of this church, at any given time, there are people who are being crushed in our midst. And you know, you may not have been crushed yet, and you've led a charmed life so far, but I just want to be the, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. You're gonna. It's gonna happen. It's life. And then, in that crushing, we have to say, not my will, your will, Lord. And that's what I started thinking. I just started going through my mind. And that's part of what we want you to do. When you sing with us is think it through, enter into it, personalize it. What does that mean to me? What should I do because of that? If that's true, how does that change the way I live? That's, that's, how, that's how that's supposed to happen. All right? So we're going to take a short break. And uh, you can talk and get a, a cup of coffee or whatever. And... Uh, and for those at home, same thing. We're going to rearrange the stage a little bit and then continue. All right, so let's take that break right now. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. Good to have you back. Everyone at home, get in from your kitchen and sit down. Um, I want to take a moment, too, just to thank, because I think this is uh, something that is important. We, we have uh, people who give faithfully to our church and... Um, have caused us in the midst of, of an incredibly difficult time for churches financially. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of a member of these kind of networks, and, and what's going on is churches all over the United States are closing because they've run into financial difficulties because of COVID-19. And, and, and we are doing fairly well because people are giving faithfully. They're giving faithfully here. At that. They're giving online at fcministries.com, and some are mailing it in. And so that I just... Thank you, and, and we appreciate it um, because God is working. We, we've had the benefit of some sound financial counsel in the past, um, and it has benefited us greatly. All right, this morning, what I want to talk about, we're in this between time, between series. Uh, usually, you know, we, I want to be, uh, be going through books expositionally, and, and between books, we, we do a few things that I feel like I want to do and I feel like are important. Uh, for us, and today I want to talk about the heart of the heart of a king. This is from 1 Samuel 16. If you've got your Bible, 1 Samuel 16, um, I'm going to read the passage. It's 16, 1 through 13, so it's a little bit long. It's somewhat of a familiar passage for some of you, but I, I want to read that. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as your king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. When they met him, they asked, do you come in peace? Don't you wish you could be the kind of person that when you just walk in a room, people are like, uh, is this guy going to kill me? I don't know. I think that could be kind of cool. I, I, sorry. <laughs> right now, my wife is at home. Stick to the scripture. Don't say what comes in your head. All right. 
So Samuel said, yes, I come in, I, I, in peace. I have come to sacrifice the, to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things like man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord has, and Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then he had Shammah pass by nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise up and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed in the presence of his brothers uh, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. All right, so the search for a true king. This is what's going on here in this passage. It starts all the way back with Hannah, who is Samuel's mother. And uh, she gets a vision of the true king that is coming. And she sings a song about the true king that is coming. She describes him as one who will not accumulate power, but will empower the powerless. She describes him as one who will work for justice. She describes him as one who lives. He lives to serve people, not use people. That's the true king that's coming. And Samuel the prophet, who was Hannah's son, he knew about her vision for the king. And that's why he's weeping previously in this time over Saul. Saul has turned out to be a person who is a user of people. He's turned out to be a person who co covets power. He wants power for himself. He's not the true king that Israel needs. He's just like all the rest of all the human kings. Now, don't limit this passage just as a historical story about good kings and bad kings. This passage is about the longing for justice on this earth. The longing for a society filled with people who serve others and lift others up. Who don't accumulate, but distribute power to people who are powerless. Because we're still longing for that today. A society that operates that way. And God is saying here, he's going to teach us here as we go through this too, that as, as Christians, we're supposed to be the ones at the forefront of this happening. And today, I mean, I read this all the time. People despair over the lack of justice in this world, in this society. Who can we trust? Who's not corrupt? That's just what Samuel was saying back then. Things haven't changed. This is one of the greatest things about the Word of God. It is timeless. It describes things happening thousands of years ago, and they're just what's happening today. Just what's happening today. And we're still longing for this. But God comes to Samuel and he says there is a king and there is a way to infuse kingly character into the human race. We can be kingly. God wants us to be kingly. That's the way he wants us. That's what he made us for. That's what you are made for, to be that kind of a person. So let's, let's start off here. We're, we're, we're looking for a kingly heart. This is what this is going on. This is a key idea in this passage, this idea of looking and seeing, all right? 
in verse one, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as your king over Israel? See, Samuel is all torn up over this. Samuel anointed Saul. He thought, this is it. We're going to have the righteous king. And, Sa- and, and Saul was, he, he was just like every other king. All right. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. This, this word for chosen is a very interesting word because it's a word that has the idea of seeing something. It's, it's like I see the one I want. But, ah, man, it's so hard to bring this into English. It's the idea of seeing something because you are going to do it. All right? Like foresight. Like one time with our kids, um, we told our kids we were going to go on vacation. And, and I started saying, I see in the future for you a motel with a pool. And they're like, oh. A pool, like the one where you tried to drown Reagan. Yeah, that pool like that, yes, a pool. And then I see in your future, you know, a beach with waves. <gasps> and then I said, I see in your future a place where we're going to go and watch sword fights and we're going to eat like they did a long time ago without forks and spoons and just use our hands and stuff our faces. And they just got freaked out, excited, you know. And I'm seeing Myrtle Beach, medieval times, you know. And the hotel was a pretty lame place, I got to admit. Um, I look back and think of the places I took my kids. I'm like, you are, uh, you're, you're terrible. But it was wonderful for them. And I saw it because I was making it happen. I was making reservations. I was checking out what was available. I was checking out what our budget could afford, you know, and all of that. And then I would tell, I can see this in your future. And they were like, how do you know? You know, and I didn't have smart kids. Okay, you guys just got to understand that. So God says, when God says, I have chosen, it's a word for see, and it's that kind of see. He says, I see the man. I see, he's just a boy right now, but I see the man. And I see what he will be because I will make it so. Not because he will make it so. Because I will make it so. Because he will still fail. But I will make it so. And so God, he looked. And then, the, and, and then look again. This idea of looking and seeing. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. This is the chosen one, literally it says. Stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look. Okay, here's this vision thing. The Lord does not look at things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he's not saying saying that David has a righteous heart. He's looking at what he's going to do to David's heart. He's looking at what's going to happen. Because that word has this idea. I see it because I'm going to make it happen. All right. And this is this this whole idea of how people look at people as opposed to how God looks at people is a very key point for us to consider because it's all about misdirection. Now, what is misdirection? Well, it's like this. If you're a pickpocket or if you're a magician and, uh, you know, who knows, maybe many of you are, um, you know, all. Yeah. Which one? Right. (laughs) You know all about what misdirection is. Because, for example, when, in, and I don't know anything about this, you know, and haven't done it very much. And with a pickpocket, what they do is maybe you're on the subway or you're in a bus or, or you're in a crowded room. And what happens is they, they bump you from the side and, and their hand comes against your chest. Well, your first thought is somebody's touching me. And at that moment, they've lifted your wallet because you're more concerned about what's misdirection. 
Somebody's touching me. Somebody's touching me. And so I focus there and I miss here. I miss that, right? That's misdirection. Magic tricks are almost always like this. You get audiences to give their full attention to an inconsequential location, something that's not as important. Well, meanwhile, what is important is happening right nearby, but they're not focused on it, so they can't pick it up. You get them to look at the wrong thing. So to give your attention, your thought, your time, your money to something that is not important is to be fooled. It's not to see truly. It's to not see reality. And for many of us, this can be a struggle. This will be a struggle for your whole life where we get fooled and we focus on things that are not that important. We miss the big things because we've been, our attention has been pulled away by the things that aren't important. That's misdirection. That's don't be deceived. You know, we read that in the news. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't get focused on the wrong things. So God is saying to Samuel, not, you, not just you, but the whole human race, you are obsessed with the things that are not reality. What are the things? Well, I mean, here, what's the thing? Well, we look at his height. Eliab, he looks at his height. He's tall. This is the one. Now, why would a tall person, a person who's tall, like a, and evidently he was physically uh, impressive, height and size, why would that be important? Well, in those days, that was very important. We see this in, in a, a popular, well, this movie's pretty old, but it's still, I, I'm, I'm assuming many of you have seen this. You've seen Braveheart, right? You've seen Braveheart. Now, why was William Wallace the leader? Why was William Wallace the leader? And I'm going to take that blue face off here. Um, here's why. And this is what... Uh, you know, it's not very well represented here with this actor. William Wallace was the leader because most historians now know he stood about 6'6 or 6'7 at a time when people were significantly shorter than they are now. His sword, his sword was five and a half feet tall. Okay, that's more, that's more real. Five and a half feet tall. It was huge. All right. So William Wallace was bigger than everyone and his sword was bigger than everyone. So it doesn't mean necessarily just that they were smitten by his physical attractiveness. They were smitten by his sword when he killed him. And so people said he's the king. He's the best fighter. He, he by all accounts, historical accounts that we have, he was unstoppable in battle. If somebody tried to fight him one-on-one, -on -one, it was not a fair fight at all. Okay, and that's why he's king. That's why Samuel said, look at Eliab. Oh, okay. That's our king. Got to be him, right? He's big. He's got a big sword. He's going to lead us in battle. Right? And what is he saying? Eliab, Samuel, you've been deceived. You're looking at the wrong thing. That is not that important to God. When it comes to changing the world, that is not that important. So Samuel is not just, uh, in a sense, smitten by his appearance, but also his gifts, his competence, his skills. And God is saying, Samuel, you're having your pockets picked here. 
the character of the heart, what I can do with that heart is the reality of what's important. Physical appearance is not that important. Now, I'm not going to say anything here that you guys are going to go, oh, wow, I can't believe he said that. I never thought of that. But let's think about it. Beauty is not that important. Talent is not that important. Polish is not that important. Brilliance is not that important. Sleekness is not that important. Success is not that important. Money is not that important. I think everyone here probably... In, in an intellectual sense, you'd all go, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, we're with you, okay, that's true. But in a real sense, is that true in your life? That's hard. Beauty, success, money, power. And if, you, if, you, if those things are the things you become obsessed with, and they're more important than your heart character, then you're in deep trouble. You're having your pocket picked, as it were. So what is this passage teaching us? in looking for kingly talent. A kingly heart is more important than physical attributes. Right? A kingly heart is more important than physical attributes. The heart is more important than the outward. We live in a society and a culture where we are bombarded with images of physical beauty to the degree that no matter who you are, you can't help but compare yourself. Some sort of comparison there. We think and see more about physical beauty than any culture in the history of the world. And it is corrosive. All the research points this way. There is no doubt on this. It is incredibly corrosive to women. Because in our culture, your self-appreciation, your self-worth is inordinately tied to how thin you are. And of course, men and women are being deceived and pickpocketed, and, 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 and pickpocket seems like too mild of a word, being hammered by the unprecedented wave of an involvement in availability of pornography and how it corrodes them. Because what is pornography? Pornography deeply trains your soul to look at people exactly the opposite way of how God looks at people. If you want to know the exact opposite of how God looks at people, pornography is it. You don't need that. You know, here I am, I'm preaching against something, everybody, right? Uh, it, but it trains you to look completely at the shape and quality of the skin, not the content of the character. Character has nothing to do with it. It's all lies. It's all lies. And it permeates your life. And after a while, you can't look at people without thinking through that lens looking at the part of them that God says is the least important part. Imagine that. Imagine, this is, to me, you know, this is such a powerful trick of Satan in our lives. He has got a whole culture that is dominated by something that God says, that's worthless. And most of us probably agree with it in theory, but in practice, we're being eaten alive. It's ripping us apart. It's ripping families apart. It's ripping marriages apart. Children are paying the price for their parents' deception, and it's being handed down. It's a big thing in our lives. Our society sees people exactly the opposite way God sees people. That is an indictment that is incredible. Everyone in this culture practically does dating and mate searching this way. Just like, just like we see in this passage. 
Jesse knew one of his sons was going to become king, so he sends, he sends forward the most physically impressive one, the most gifted one. And he doesn't even bring the little kid. Why? Because he's deceived too. He believes it's all outward. And here's how we do it. Maybe you go to a gathering with some friends and you, you look at, you know, 10 members of the opposite sex and you disqualify seven of them because of outward appearance. Maybe they're just not polished enough. Maybe they're not cool. Maybe they're unsuccessful. Maybe they don't look the way you like, whatever it may be. And then what do you do? With the three that are left, you hope one of them has character. But you've limited your chances in an incredible way. So we have to be careful about this. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, I can say in one breath, I think this is the greatest nation on earth. And then I can say in, in another breath, I think this is the most messed up nation in the world. Nobody consumes pornography like the United States consumes pornography. And if ever there's a country that is ripe for the judgment of God, it's a country that objectifies women and children and mistreats them visually in, on TV screens or computer screens every day all over the country. It's a, it's, it's a scary thing, you know, when you start to think about it. All right, so, and I don't want to harp on it. It makes me start sounding, yeah, I know what it sounds like. This text is saying that the chance of you having eliminated the true prince or princess that God has for your life is really high when you start tossing seven out of ten out right away. So heart character is more important than physical appearance. Secondly, a kingly heart is more important than gifts and talents. Um, in my constant quest to educate our, our congregation on things that are really important, I want to highlight a song by Waylon Jennings because he's really important for us. Uh, that's dumb. But I love this song, Too Dumb for New York City, Too Ugly for L.A. And that kind of sums it up. That kind of sums it up. A kingly heart is more important than gifts and talents. So, so what happens to us then? So it's, oh, okay, you know, and, and, and we do this to ourselves. You say, oh, okay, I'm not that good looking. Then I need to make up for it in some way. I need to be, I need to be wicked funny, or I need to be really smart, or I need to be very outgoing, or I need to be, or I need to be, or I need to be. Why? Because you're compensating. People do that all the time. They believe what the world says. They believe what our culture says is success, successful. And then if they can't match it, they compensate in some other area. And think about this. I mean, you think about all the miseries of the world from war and oppression. It all boils down to relationships that have fallen apart, broken relationships that have caused rifts in the lives of people and, and in the lives of a nation, in the lives of other nations, countries. It all boils down to that. What is the source of the misery in our world? Is it a lack of talent? No. Is it a lack of creativity? No. Is it a lack of brilliance? No. Is it a lack of love? Yes. Because love is a character issue. It's not a talent. And all the resentment, all the m misery and oppression in this world is caused by pride and selfishness and resentment and hate. That's where it comes from. Looking at outward things condemns us to a life of comparing and never measuring up. It condemns us to a life of envying others and never being satisfied. It condemns us to a life of wanting and never being content. A life of searching and never finding. 
we are all victims of spiritual misdirection. And if you sense that in your life, if you go, man, maybe I really am struggling. I want to tell you, you, we would love for you to contact us. There are different ways that we would love to try to be a help for you in your life and the things that you may struggle with. Last week, you know, we talked about this idea of, 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 of doubts in our lives and also of, of ways that, you know, we, get, we can get off track uh, spiritually in our, in our walk with God. We desperately would love to help you. Whether, you know, if you're at home and you go, I can't come. Well, you can call and we can email. If you're here, we can, we can meet. There's just so many different ways that we would love to be a part of helping you as you navigate some of the most difficult issues of life. So, we say looking, at, looking for a kingly heart. It's more important than physical attributes. It's more important than gifts and talents. Second point, a kingly heart requires the spirit. One misconception, and I kind of mentioned this at the beginning, is, is that, that God is looking at David's heart and somehow David's heart is better than all the other hearts. No, it's God has decided this heart, I'm going to really pour into this heart. This is the one. I'm going to choose this one because this one is the opposite of what the world would choose. He could have chose Eliab. God could have chose Eliab and he could have poured into his heart. Only God knows whether Eliab would be willing but the point would be it would just follow the pattern that is reinforcing all the misconceptions of the world. So God goes, where's the runt? Where's that punk brother of yours? Right? I'll work through him. God works so many times in ways that are opposite of ours. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. He works different than we do. I mean... Listen, you know, if I was God, which is a great thing that I'm not, I don't even like myself enough to think that I could be God, but if I was God and I created this place called heaven and I created this life that was going to bring ultimate meaning and fulfillment in people's lives and this place that is just unbelievable where they would get to go to spend eternity, eternity with me, oh man, would you have to hop through some hoops to get in there. I would be very picky probably more picky than any person could ever make it. And so what happens? We have a God who does it the opposite of how we would do it. He says, I'm going to make it available to everyone. And they, I'm not going to be picky. I'll take anyone. I'll take anyone. So with David, um, God is looking at his heart and he's seeing what he can do. Because and for people, and I heard a guy, I was listening to some sermons about this not that long, and heard a guy saying, you know, David had that good heart, that good character. And I'm like, no, he didn't. Look at the rest of his life. He's a failure. I mean, let's just rehearse a little, right? He's a rapist. He's a murderer. Uh, do, I need to, do we need any more? I mean, is that enough for you guys? I mean, you think about that. David was just as bad as Saul. In fact, I, I, I looked one time through the life of Saul and the life of David. What's the difference? And I only found one difference. David admitted his sins and asked for, for forgiveness. And Saul tried to hide his sins. So when God says, David is a man after my own heart, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a person, not a person who doesn't sin. He's talking about a person who will admit their sins and ask forgiveness, who will come clean with God, right? Every parent 
experiences this with their children. Look, I know you're going to get in trouble sometimes. I know that's probably going to happen. Please call me. Just tell me up front. Don't try to hide it. Right? Don't drive drunk. Don't go to that place. Don't, whatever it is, parents, why? Because they would love, they would much rather have an honest, and honest relationship that includes all the rough stuff than a relationship of hiding. And God is saying the same thing here. So he didn't have intrinsically a good heart. The passage uh, tells us also in verse 13. So the Lord took, took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. See, the spirit of the Lord is what's key. That's why we say a kingly heart requires the spirit. And under that, the first thing I realize is a kingly heart is not natural. It's not there naturally. Naturally for us is to see ourselves as the center of the universe, right? That's how we are. And it doesn't take, I mean, it starts, starts from the beginning. But we look at ourselves as the center of the universe. Uh, and people will use everything. They'll even use church and the idea of God to puff themselves up. So it's a work of the spirit. Look, education is good. Um, being involved politically is good. You know, there's a lot of things that you can do that are good, but those things don't change a person's heart. They don't change a person's heart. Only the spirit does that. And so kingly character is this idea of my life for you. I'm happy if you're happy. Sinful character is your life to serve me. My happiness is above your happiness. That's the difference. And a kingly heart, I just want you to see this. Because this is, I, I don't ever want to pull punches. I don't ever want to gloss things over. A kingly heart is costly. Once the spirit, of, uh, the spirit comes on David, his life, just, just so you, if you remember any of this Old Testament uh, story here, his life does not become easier. In many ways, it becomes difficult. Once he is chosen, he immediately starts running for his life and is hunted because of that. And oftentimes when the spirit comes, trouble begins. Because see, following Jesus is not about having a better life. It's not about what's best for me or best for this world. It's not about helping my kids to have it better than I did. Following Jesus is about this. What is the truth? And I follow the truth unreservedly. That's what life with Jesus is about. Right? If there's a God, and he's told us some things. Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? God has spoken. What am I going to do with it? What's the truth? And I want the truth. I mean, for me, I want the truth. I take it very seriously. God tells us that people who stand up in front of people and teach have an extra burden because they are held to a higher standard because they are supposed to teach the truth as best they know. Now, sometimes I make mistakes. Sometimes I say things wrong. And there have been times where I've gotten up in front of this body, this congregation, and said, the other week I said this, I was wrong. I was wrong. Um, because I want the truth. Even if I don't like it, I want the truth. And so... When we talk about character, because this is all about character, it develops best, unfortunately, it develops best in difficult times and shines forth 
best in difficult times. Character is a huge part of our emotional well-being. You know, you think about a person who's not afraid of failure. Think about that. Think if there was a person who just totally was not afraid of failure. They will always be more happy. They will always be more content than a person who's terrified of failure. It, it just, it will always happen. Think about a person who's not bothered by criticism. They will be much more stable than someone who is devastated by criticism. Think about a person who has no need to prove herself. Much happier than someone who is driven and anxious and maybe even cheating to get ahead or at least to be less overworked, right? If we can, if we can be not afraid of failure, not bothered by criticism, feel like we don't have to prove ourselves, we begin living in a whole new way. It's a freedom. You know, you think, think about what makes you unhappy now. Happy now. What, what's making me unhappy? That's a lack of contentedness. It's not a lack of happy circumstances. You don't need happy circumstances to be happy. It's character. That's what it's all about. Character is costly. It's difficult because it is worth so much. Character is doing the right thing, whether it makes you happy or not. And paradoxically, it is the only way to be happy in life. Blessed are those, happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. See, they're not chasing happiness. They're chasing righteousness. And that's where they find the contentment and the joy and the peace that we so desperately need. It was interesting. I saw a study that was done at Princeton University, and they were doing a study of the people who tended to be the most happy. And they were saying that it's very hard to define happiness and, you know, emotional well-being, different things like that. But one of the things they said was they, they saw a correlation. People who are most involved in serving others tended to be the happiest people. But then they found something out. This is the great problem with that. Then when people decided to start serving so they could be happy, they weren't. It didn't work. They had to serve out of the kindness of their heart, out of a sense of goodness, not to get happiness, just to serve. That's why, I mean, and, you know, it's kind of like I'd love to go to one of, those, one of those sociologists at Princeton and say, hey, listen, I can quote you a Bible verse that would save you a lot of time, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Happy are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're not chasing happiness. Character is the only way to be truly happy, and it comes by deciding to do what is right, regardless of whether it makes you happy or not. There is a catch. Suffering does not automatically give you character. I think we've all seen this. There's some people who have suffered and become bitter and hateful and hard. Saul, the king, king Saul, is a... Is a is a case in point. So, looking for a kingly heart. Secondly, a kingly heart requires the spirit. Thirdly, a kingly heart begins with God. All right? Because what happened? Samuel's sitting there. He looks at the, all those sons and he says, is this it? This is all you got? Right? Imagine Jesse's like, oh, these are the best ones. Right? So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? He says, they're still the youngest Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep, right? Now, the youngest is, is, is this Hebrew word, haktan. And, and what it means is, youngest is not a strong enough word. It means inconsequential. It means runt. Uh, almost even like punk. 
You know, well, there's the little one, but he's not much good. He's a dope, right? He's still small. We have no, t we have no idea how tall he'll be, so I know you don't want that, right? He could end up being short. Horrors, right? He's good for nothing but sheep. And it's interesting. Um, I have three daughters, so I tend to think of things in these light. David is like a male Cinderella, right? He's left to the domestic chores, those dull and lonely chores, tending sheep. But that's what prepared him for Goliath and leading the nation of Israel in the future. That's what prepared him. The stuff that was below everyone else. And yet that's what made him ready. Because he'd start dealing with the Israelites and go, they're not, they're not as bad as sheep, trust me, right? They're not that dumb. That kind of a thing. That's what's going on. And this is a pattern that we see over and over and over in Scripture. God using the least thought of, the lowliest, for, to do great things. To do great things. God is continually reversing the world's value. He chooses the runt to be the king. He chooses the younger over the older. He chooses in Hannah and in other places with, with Jacob and others, he chooses the barren woman who's unable to have children to, to do something incredibly great. God always works with the one that no one wants. He works with the one that everyone else looks down on. Everyone else oh, feels sorry for. Right? That's the one God works with. He loves doing that. It doesn't mean he doesn't work with the talented. He doesn't work with those who are smart. It doesn't mean that. But it, what it is is for those people, they have to have that humility to understand. Just like we sang, I come to him, I come to you with nothing. You don't need my brains, God. You don't need my talents, God. You don't need my abilities. You don't need this svelte body. <laughs> Why did I say that? That's an interesting one, too. You don't need me. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, I'm sorry. You don't need me, God. I got nothing for you. I got nothing to bring to you. And what happens? God says, yep, that's what I can use. That's the person I can use. You need to work really hard at getting over you. I need to work really hard at getting over me. It's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. And so... He says, is, he says, yeah, well, we got that other kid, the little punk, but uh, we can run up and get him. And, and, and Samuel's like, you go get him right now. We're not waiting. Go get him. We don't have time to do anything. God always works with the one no one wants. So now, what can we do? Because here's what's hap what happens. You're tempted to do this, and this is the exact wrong thing to do. You're tempted to say, you know what? I need to stop being a victim of spiritual misdirection. I need to be a person of character. It doesn't work that way. It's not something you can conjure up. You know, maybe you have a feel of fa failure. So now what do you do? You say, I am not going to feel your failure. You stand up in front of a mirror and you say it 10 times to your reflection. I'm not going to fear failure. I'm not going to fear failure. I can't even say it 10 times. I, I'm not going to fear failure. And then you turn and walk away and somebody says, oh, man, this is going to, we got a problem here. Oh, no, it's all coming apart. Why? Because you can't make yourself change that way. You know, you, you, can't, you can't do that. You can't sit in front of a mirror and say, I will not be depressed anymore. You can't control that that way. It doesn't work that way. People become obsessed with beauty and intellect and talentedness and power and money and outward things. And all it leads to is an emptiness inside that then they compensate for. 
And so how will I deal? How will I deal with a lack of security or a lack of a sense of purpose and worth? What am I going to say? I'm not going to be needy anymore? That's impossible. That's impossible. Something has to happen. You will never develop the kingliness that God wants in your life until you know the true king. That's the first step. Samuel looks at Eliab and he says, surely this is the one. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's the chosen one. And I think it's, it's, it's this idea that Hannah saw it and Samuel said that there is a chosen one that's coming. We don't know when, but there is a Messiah that is coming, the chosen one. And he's saying, ah, maybe, maybe he's looking for that. The one that's coming even after David, even after in the future. And the New Testament tells us they're in Bethlehem. The New Testament tells us there's another child at Bethlehem who's sleeping where sheep eat, who's anointed by the Spirit and sent out into the wilderness, not just to be hunted by Saul like David was, but to be hunted and assaulted by Satan. A child of Bethlehem who is not just forgotten by his father like David was, but who is forsaken by his father. It's a whole different deal. Jesus for us on the cross experienced something that he'd never experienced before in eternity past and would never experience again. The father turned away from him. The father turned away from him. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? All these other people, all my disciples, they've forsaken me. I can take that, but God, you? And he did that. He did that for me. He did it for you. He did it for you. He gave it all up so that we, who are poverty-stricken by sin in our lives, could gain it all. And the only, only one thing can get to the, to the root of why we don't have the character that we wish we had, that we ought to have. We have to know this. Now, this is the kind of thing where we can struggle because we all know these things intellectually. We know them intellectually. You know, I talk about this all the time as we deal with, I've talked about when we were in Hosea, I've talked about recently with some of our other, is that we need to get ourselves into the story. We need to feel what people felt. You know, when we see a man whose son is desperately ill, has thrown himself into fire, who's, who's thrown himself into water to drown or been thrown into water to drown, and this man's heart is breaking for his son, we need to enter into that. We need to feel that a little bit. The heartbreak that that man is feeling as he goes to Jesus. Because now the story becomes more real to us. And so for us, we know some of these things intellectually, but I want you to, we have to know this. The most powerful being in the universe became, as it were, the runt. Just for you. Just for me. When Jesus was on the cross, he had me in mind, specifically, and you. And I don't know how that works, but he did. We tend to say, oh, he died for the sins of the whole world. No, he died for each individual sin of the whole world so that mine passed by. These are Bob's sin. This one, this one, this one. And it went on for a long time. He did that. The greatest became the least so that the least could attain greatness. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a child of the king and you are an heir. He says you're an heir. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Scripture tells us that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He loves you like he loves Jesus. That's amazing. That's amazing. He wants you. He chases you. And when you think on this, when this begins to penetrate and get into your head and into your mind and into your thoughts and into your feelings, it will change you from the inside out. The true king is Jesus. And when we embrace him, this flows into us so that knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, learning Jesus, embracing Jesus, allowing him to work in our lives, being willing to step out for him on things, to, to take a chance, as it were, it changes us from the inside out. That's the only way it happens. You know, I think last week or the week before I was talking about how um, I, uh, I read a number, I've read a number of books. I try to keep up to date on what's being said by atheists and what, what the, the new thoughts are and, and th- as things change because it's, it's always fluctuating in terms of things that they, they harp on or things that they, that sounds terrible. I don't want to say it that way. Things that they emphasize or, or things like that. And, but one of the things that I find is very interesting in, in all these books that I read, I, I never, they never bring forward and say, look, this guy man, tell him, tell him. And the guy says, I was a drunk, but as soon as I learned there was no God, it all went away. I, not one, not one. I was a drug addict, but as soon as I learned God's not real, my desire for drugs went away. No, what happens is God's not real. Give me more drugs. I feel like that's what I would do, right? I, I beat my wife, but once I became a, you know, an atheist, it all, they never, that never happens. And yet in this church, in this body here and online, we have people that would stand up and say, I was a drunk, but once I met Christ, I became sober. Maybe not instantly, but I became sober. I was an addict and once I met Christ, I stopped. My marriage was a mess and I met Christ and he brought healing into my marriage. I know tons of people like that. Because he changes us from the inside out. And that's the key. Because we can't do it. Everything that we do is outward stuff. We make ourselves look better. We learn to talk better. We, we exercise. We eat right. We try to do this. We try to do that. Those aren't bad things. Don't get me wrong. But if you think that's true change, that's not true change. Because your heart's the same. And that's where we need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. That we see in the pages of a book written 2,800 years ago, the same thing we struggle with now. Maybe we struggle with it even more, Lord. And so I pray for, for, for myself. I pray for each person here, people listening, people participating, that you would give us hope. You would help us to see the way you see to see people the way you see people, to see ourselves the way you see us because you see us in such an incredible way. You see Jesus in us and we don't always see that. But Lord, as we begin to see that, as we begin to experience that, the spirit works and our heart changes and we we experience the true change that comes from inside out. Lord, we can't do that. Help us, help us, I pray, Father. We need you desperately. 
Help us to see the areas where we've been deceived, where we've been fooled, we've watched the wrong thing, we've, we've, uh, we've, we've decided that the wrong thing is the most important thing, and help us to see those things, Lord, and to begin the process of changing. And we, lo- we know in your word you say that it's a process that goes on in our lives. So, Father, we pray that the process would start or would grow in our lives if it's happening already so that we would start to reflect you more and more and that we would be living the life that you created us for, eternal life on earth. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I just want to thank you for coming and being with us. I want to remind you, in the back, uh, we have a, a basket, and there's some three-by-five cards. And if you ever want, we have some people that are willing to pray. And if you ever want some people to pray for you, you can just write it down, drop it in the basket, turn, flip it over. You can write your name, or you can make it anonymous. That doesn't matter. And we have some people that will pray for you faithfully and pray for your, your, your issue, your problem, whatever it may be, whether it's small or whether it's huge. It doesn't matter. We love to be able to do that. So that, that's the little basket in the back. And... Uh, Feel free to to use that and to put something in there if God so leads you. Thanks again for coming and worshiping with us. God bless you, and you are dismissed.